a listener production. The great resignation is a real phenomenon. There's certainly a higher rate of attrition. Some will argue that it's simply a correction and it's a long overdue correction. It's more a case of people looking for work that is better suited to the things that they value in their lives, their time, their well-being and their health. I'm Margie Hartley, executive coach to senior leaders around the globe, and this is Fast Track. If you haven't heard about it yet, you surely will in the coming year. It's what's called the Great Resignation. This exodus of talented people from their jobs, people rethinking their careers and either changing roles or choosing to stop working. The data is telling a story very clearly in America. But what about Australia and Asia and Europe? What's the trend and what is happening to workers around the globe? And importantly, what should we be doing about it? The pandemic has reshaped society and work, and there's a lot to learn from the trends and a lot to anticipate so we can navigate the change and flourish. Who better to help me understand the great resignation than Aaron McEwen? Aaron is a top 100 HR influencer, a coaching psychologist, a strategic advisor, and an innovation expert. He's also the vice president of research and advisory for Gartner an associate at Macquarie University's Centre for Workforce Futures, an adjunct senior lecturer for the School of Population Health at the University of New South Wales. And he's also on the National Committee for the Australian Psychological Society's Special Interest Group on Coaching Psychology. So it's clear this is someone who is closer to the truth than most of us when we need to see and understand the trends in the workplace. Aaron, thank you so much for joining us on Fast Track. I've been eagerly awaiting our discussion on this topic. Oh, absolutely. My pleasure. Thank you. So let's start with an explanation. What's the data telling us about the trends and patterns of the pandemic on work and society? Well, I guess like all of these questions, it kind of depends. And in this case, it depends on where you are in the world. So when we look at the United States, there's this very clear trend. So the the great resignation is is a real phenomenon in the United States. Uh, I think now we're we're approaching the fifth month of record attrition levels in the United States. A really big chunk of that, though, is based around uh, service-type industries. So it's really frontline workers where we're seeing this massive resignation. Everywhere else, though, it's more a case of people rethinking what is important to them in their career. So I do kind of want to make that point very clearly that the way that this phenomenon is shaping up in Australia is very different to the United States. And it's different because there are some underlying factors that are very, very different. I'm really keen to understand what those underlying factors are. The great resignation sounds very dramatic. Yes. <laughs> You've described it as frontline workers leaving. Tell me a bit about what the data is telling us about Australia. Well, the data is kind of uh, speculative right now. So when people in Australia talk about the great resignation, and I've been speaking about this now for a number of months, it's really anticipating something that's coming. So we know that there's this phenomenon in the US. It's happening across pockets of, of Europe and other countries. But in Australia, what we're really looking at is leading indicators. 
So there has been a slightly higher than average or higher than historical amount of people leaving their jobs. But in Australia, it feels at this stage a little bit more like a correction. So for the last two to three years, Australia has actually had declining rates of attrition. And so what's happening now is you could say it's a bit of a correction, so we're just catching up. But I think that what that points to, though, is that there are some longer-term indicators that would suggest that when we get into March and a little bit further into the beginning of the year, that it's going to be more than, a, than simply a correction. So what we're probably talking about and, and the data that I would point to most is that employees uh, right around the world, but also here in Australia, are really pointing to the pandemic as being an event that has fundamentally changed what they value in both the work that they do, but their lives as well. So we will see a movement, and I think a very significant movement of talent, particularly after we get through February and into March. It's not necessarily people resigning from work, though. And I think that's the point I want to make, is that what it's more about is people looking for work that is better suited to the things that they value in their lives. So I often talk about it as, as more a reflection of people thinking very differently as a result of the pandemic about what is important to them. And not just um, from a health perspective, not just the fact that we, most of us became much closer to family, but we also reconnected with things like pets and hobbies and interests. I often point to, I think the, the stat I saw was a 16% increase in the sale of guitars during the pandemic. And you could find similar stories about the sale of uh, pianos or flutes, whatever it might be. So you had all of these people all over the world who their world suddenly became much smaller. They were very focused on their health, their well-being, and what was close and important to them. And as a result, we've seen them rethink the role of work in their lives. So what I think we'll see in Australia is not so much a great resignation of people quitting their jobs because they want to get away from work, but rather it's a, a resettling of where work sits in their lives. And a lot of people will make decisions to change employers because they're looking for something different or something more. Or looking to reset, whatever that might be. Yeah, there's lots of Lots of words that have been banning around, you know, the great reset, the great reflection, and I think they're all accurate. Um, the great resignation is a real phenomenon. There's, there's certainly a higher rate of attrition. Some will argue that it's simply a correction and it's a long overdue correction. Uh, but I think, and the data certainly points, that there's something deeper underlying it. It's not simply a correction. What do you think the implications are for us all? Well, one of the terms that I've heard, which I think is one of the more interesting ones, is the end of ambition. And so this is a, another phenomenon that has been, like many things, uh, accelerated by the pandemic. And this is this idea of maybe if you are one of the lucky ones who kept their job during COVID, um, whose livelihood wasn't lost as it has been for millions of workers around the world, but if you're um, economically comfortable... Uh, if you own your own home, you're probably sitting on record levels of equity. And, and there's certainly data that, that supports this as well, that people have saved a lot of money by not travelling to work. 
or not going into offices, for example, or not be able to go on holidays or spend money at restaurants and do all of the things that they used to do. So you've got this pretty large body of knowledge workers that are well-educated, highly skilled, sitting on record levels of home equity, but also are very cash rich. And so what many of those people will probably do is make decisions about what is important to them. Now, that could be that they see their lives as being, I have enough. I actually don't need to work as hard as I thought I did to have the life that I want because our lives have kind of shrunk. And so I think there'll be a lot of very experienced knowledge workers that will step back from work. And this could be a great thing. One of the things I suspect might happen is that men finally embrace part-time work. And so I think there will be a lot of full-time workers that take a step back and look at part-time options. They might start to look at self-employment, and that's certainly one of the things that is driving part of the Great Resignation is people stepping out of paid employment into self-employment. But I think a lot of people will be looking for a portfolio-style career. A lot of the knowledge workers. Yet our frontline workers are doing the same thing in America with this sense of leaving their jobs because they're not satisfying or have bad conditions. I think it's worse than that. I, I think they're leaving exploitation. So I think this is the big difference between the US and Australia. In the US, your health, your life is tied to health insurance. Health insurance is tied to employment. And for a whole bunch of other factors, what that has created is this kind of environment where many frontline workers are having to work three to four jobs just to live, not to be comfortable, but to just barely live. And what I think is underlying the great resignation in in those segments of the US economy are people are choosing between poverty So the choice is, do I work myself to the bone and be poor or do I just be poor? And if I'm just poor, at least I can spend what little time I have in my life on things that enrich me. Um, So I think a really big part of the great resignation in the US is a rejection of worker exploitation. And we're seeing that much more prominently displayed in the data in the US. In countries like Australia, where we have a social safety net and arguably a culture that is a little softer around the edges when it comes to those matters of survival, you know, even the least skilled, the most tenuously employed Australians can rely to a degree on a social safety net, which means they do have more choice. And so the movement of people out of jobs in Australia is is not quite the same as what we've seen in the US because of that factor. So interesting. One of my questions was going to be, some people think it's just a talent shortage and it'll blow over once we get to travel again, once the pandemic is over, right? Yeah. So what I'm hearing from you is there's a change in mindset that the data and trends in Australia are telling us, as well as the talent shortage, as well as the correction in the way things have been, where wages have been stagnant and there's been a stability in the workplace. Yeah. I mean, this is one of the funny things, you know, Yes, you could argue that there is a shortage of talent because our borders have been closed. But it doesn't matter where you look. Where you see organisations that treat their people well, pay them what they're worth, they don't have any trouble attracting talent. 
But where you see sectors of the economy where people are treated poorly, they're not paid their worth, and they have to work in less than favourable conditions, well, they complain about talent shortages. <laughs> so I, I actually don't think there is a shortage of talent. There's plenty of talent to go around. It's just that one of the factors or one of the things that the pandemic has accelerated is people placing a much higher value on their time, on their well-being and on their health and on the things and people that they love. I can admit to this myself, you know, prior to the pandemic, I was a frequent flyer that probably spent more time in the Qantas lounge than I spent at home. Going back to that life seems ridiculous. Like it, it is not even an option that I would consider in my, you know, deepest, darkest hours. Um, I simply place my family and myself ahead of my work. And yet I can say categorically that they used to come second before the pandemic. And I'm not alone in, in having that shift in prioritisation. Well, my hope is that all the knowledge workers that are deciding to reset, that they are able to support the other inequities around. That would be a really nice rebalance, wouldn't it? <laughs> Absolutely, yeah. I read recently in a McKinsey article that they said this phenomenon is just because of dissatisfaction with leadership mm. and that it should be called the great disconnect. I know that from the data we found that leaders were revered generally in 2020 and then deeply maligned in 2021, mm. which was a funny pattern. Yeah. What do you think with that idea that we're just dissatisfied with leadership politically and in organisations right now across the spectrum and that's where we're just disconnected? I mean, I, like everything, there's a lot of truth to that and I think it is a big factor but it, it's certainly not just about leadership. Um, but, let, you know, let's tackle the leadership piece. Um, that data is correct. We also, and when I say we, I mean Gartner also has uh, very distinct and specific data that shows that one of the main reasons that a employees, particularly employees in Australia, are leaving organisations is that they are dissatisfied with management. Now, we could debate management versus leadership, but I, essentially, you know, <laughs> they're kind of the same thing, although they're, they're very different in some other ways. But I think what it also points to is we, we also have data that shows that there is a huge disconnect. So I do like that language between the experience of workers and the experience of leaders. And where it shows up most pointedly at the moment is the desire to bring people back into offices. So leaders want people back. Generally speaking, workers don't want to go back. <laughs> um, and we, we did research that looked at a whole range of factors and we show, and it showed that there was a disconnect between the perceptions of leaders and workers across almost all aspects of hybrid work and the experience during the pandemic. For leaders, things like um, connection to the company increased. For workers, it decreased. Things like uh, trust in the organisation increased for leaders but decreased for workers. So there was a very disconnected experience. So I think some of why people are leaving organisations is that they are dissatisfied with the decisions that leaders are making. And a classic example at the moment is... Many companies have adjusted their 
um, flexible work arrangements to support hybrid work. And in those models, it's often, you know, the desire of the organisation might be something like three days in the office, two days at home. Now, employees are actually going, oh, I think I want, you know, three days at home, two days in the office, if it's going to come down to that binary. And one of the most interesting data points we found was that this dissatisfaction with managers was rising because what employees were experiencing was that the interpretation of the company's policy around flexible work came down to the manager. So you might have a manager that interprets the company's flexible work policy as, uh, we want you in the office four days a week. Whereas another manager would say, "Ah, we just need you in the office one day a week. And so that that kind of lived experience of that manager's interpretation has a huge impact then on that employee. And where flexible work becomes inflexible because you're being told that you're allowed to be flexible. Yeah. So at the end of the day, a lot of this comes down to autonomy. And this is why I don't think it's just leadership. I think what happened during the pandemic, and by the way, this happens in pandemics a lot, (laughs) Um, but the bubble burst the hood was kind of ripped off millions of employees who kind of went, what the hell is this work thing anyway? Like, what is this, right? Like, why do I come to this weird office and have to sit around people that I don't particularly enjoy hanging out with in an open plan environment where I can't concentrate on my work, where I have to battle horrid traffic to get here and put every other part of my life second in order to do this thing called work. And somehow we were convinced that that's the right thing to do. In fact, we would fight for the opportunity to do that, right? What I think happened was the bubble burst around flexible work. We realised en masse what everybody knew, which was (laughs) working from home is not that bad, right? And, you know, the world doesn't end if we're not in offices, right? So that, that was one of those bubbles that kind of burst. And everyone's like, yeah, we kind of knew this, but it's nice to see this shared experience that everyone's having. But the other one was that working your guts out leads somewhere. And this, to me, is the most interesting part. So in the United States, you've got this really extreme version of it, which is I can have three jobs and work my guts out and I will never own a home I will never get my kids in private school. I will never be able to move out of this. In fact, I might not even be able to afford healthcare. I might die if I get sick. That's the extreme version. But in countries with a social safety net, it wasn't so drastic, but it was still this, I work my guts out, but I haven't received a pay rise in like 10 years. I haven't been getting promoted because the company keeps saying, oh, you know, it's not quite, we just don't have the headcount, right? I'm not really receiving any learning and development. So why am I working so hard? Yeah, and I would interpret that in my lived experience with a person I know who's an ICU nurse. And they said to me, this is not what we signed up for, right? Yeah. So for mismanagement, and whatever it might be, this idea of this is not what I signed up for. That's right. And I think that could be translated in lots of ways with the things you've been talking about. Yeah. I do want to ask you, Aaron, what as an individual and then what as a leader do 
I and then what can an organisation do as this all plays out? Yeah. Do we all panic? Do we all go and rent a trailer and go to the beach? I mean, <laughs> I know there's choice for each of us as individuals, but what yeah. are some of the ideas that you've got for us? Well, I might start with the really big picture level first because that, that previous point I made is about hope. So, you know, without hope, there's no aspiration. And without aspiration, there really is no growth, right? So if, if organisations want to grow, if people want to grow, and I do believe that they do, then they have to have hope. So that's the first thing. So at a macroeconomic level, the psychological contract has been broken. To your point, I didn't sign up for this. You know, like, what did I sign up for? It was probably some vague version of what I thought my parents signed up for, which is you work hard, you get a house, you know, you have a family, you get a white picket fence, whatever that is for each person. So the first thing I think at a societal level is that we need to re-establish hope that if you do aspire to grow, that your society creates the foundations for that to happen. Uh, now, I don't want to get into a debate about the redistribution of wealth and all of these things, but this is what I think we are facing at the micro level. People have, have lost hope, right? And then at the macro level, we have something like climate change, which is an existential threat. So if working hard doesn't get me anywhere and there's no future because the planet's dying, is it any wonder that people are going, why would I go to work and get yelled at, right? Or go to work and be exploited or go to work and just put in sweat and tears if there's nothing at the end of it. So to me, everything comes back to that. Uh, so if you're an organisational leader, what you have to do is mend the psychological contract with your employees, which is to say, in exchange for your labour, your sweat and your tears and all of the stress, there is development. There is progression. There is growth. And if you can't promise that, well, you're just going to have to accept the great resignation is going to be around for you as an organisation for a while. If you're an individual, it's like, right, find a company that gives you hope. <laughs> you know, that's what it's going to be. And, and, and I think for many employees, they will be asking those questions. Why are you here as an organisation? What do you do? What is the value that you provide? And there's a lot of data coming through to show that people are looking for purpose. But some of the most interesting data when you dig in underneath it is that we get more purpose out of the work that we do than the big statements of the company, right? And so this is where I think it's going to get really fascinating is that how do you reconnect with the work that you do? Companies will need to provide better work. And this gets even more fascinating when you think when we work from home in this kind of hybrid model, all we have is the work. You know, we don't have the Friday night drinks and, and we don't have the social life. Like I met my partner at work. That's not going to happen anymore. <laughs> it's like I can't even picture how that would happen, right? Um, and so... If you take away all of the stuff that sits around work or used to, all that's left is the work that you do. So if the work is not meaningful and it's not interesting and it's not engaging, people won't do it if they have choice. 
So if I'm hearing you as an individual, I really need to check in and see if I can find some connection to the work and some purpose yeah, and maybe some way of reorganising myself or my team or others yeah. around me to, to create some more meaning and connection around that work. That's right. Or it could be about job crafting. Um, so I've spoken to quite a, a few media outlets about this idea of um, hyper-personalisation. So job crafting is a concept that's been around for, for many, many years, but I think it's about to become a real thing. Um, and that is that we choose work based on the combination of tasks that, that add up to enjoyment. Uh, so, for example, like when we first um, started speaking today, I mentioned that I was out in the yard doing all of these jobs, right, that I'd, I'd been putting off. So part of it has been building a deck and, and pulling down an old one and, and reconstructing it, and I actually really enjoy doing that work. And so I've often said if I could wave a magic wand, I would do this work, you know, my consulting work, a couple of days a week, and then for the other two I'd build houses, and if I could have that combination of intellectual stimulation and physical stimulation, I'd be happy as Larry. Now, I did mention something there, very specific, which was two days consulting, two days building, four-day week, right? That's what I want, right? And that's what millions of people want. Well, I've heard that. I said to my walking partner, the four-day working week is coming back, and they said, nah, that'll never work. It will. <laughs> so it's interesting that you bring that up now, that the four-day week is coming. So maybe we'll have to have you back on and we can talk more specifically about what a four-day week looks like. The idea of job crafting I'm passionate about and Hope Theory by Roy Snyder, massive fan. But the job crafting piece that I brought into my business, I've got a team of people and it's like, how many days a week do you want to facilitate? How many days a week do you want to coach? What brings you joy? And you know that you're probably going to have to do some things that you don't really light your fire. That's right. However, we're going to try and give you as much of those as possible. So I really think that people would benefit from having a look at this idea of job crafting. Aaron, I want to ask you, what's the best way as an individual to stay on top of the trends and the changes that are going on? I guess what I, what I would go back to is that it, it goes back to curiosity. And, and there's some, you know, wonderful things that I've been kind of taught over the years by, by special people. And one of them, which, you know, always resounds for me, particularly anyone interested in coaching, is uh, run to the tension. So wherever you feel tension, that's where the answers to complexity lie. Now, what we do is we naturally lean away from tension. But if we lean into it, we'll actually find the most important things that we need to grapple with. So I would say that there's a combination of curiosity, which is what parts of these big macro changes are interesting to you. I, I often get asked the question, and this, this, this is really interesting because, you know, we were talking about the disconnect with leaders earlier. One of the big reasons there's a disconnect with leaders is that our most experienced leaders have the lowest levels of digital dexterity of all workers. So that's why they're struggling in a world of virtual work because you know, they don't know how to make themselves look good on camera and <laughs> get all these ring lights and stuff that their, you know, millennial uh, brethren have absolutely no problems with. Um, so I, I often get asked by CEOs, you know, how do I increase my digital dexterity? And I'll always say, go get yourself 
a virtual assistant. Like if you don't have a HomePod or an Alexa, get one and start talking to it because that's how work's going to be done. Or get yourself some VR glasses and immerse yourself in that technology. So part of it is that kind of curiosity. So if technology is a curiosity for you, just run into it. Maybe you're more curious about the social changes that are occurring in the world. Uh, So, for example, if you're already into social media, you know, social media is going to be really interesting over the next little while because part of the great resignation will also be (laughs) the great outing where employers are cancelled. Well, we're seeing that at the moment with a major music streaming service that's some of that going on. Mm. The debate is occurring through those sort of actions. So that bubble that you talked about being burst, that's going to have massive implications across so many things that we've come to get used to. I've seen a lot of knowledge workers write off Facebook and Instagram. So what does that mean for us? Yeah, I mean, I'm no, I'm no fan of them, but don't write them off. Mm. You know, so this is like, be curious about them. I like this idea of being curious and going to where the tension is. Mm. I'm so sad to be finishing this interview, but I'm so informed now. And I love this discussion we've been having about what it is we've been experiencing and what we can do while it's playing out. I really want to thank you so much for your time. And please come back and talk to me about the four-day week. I'd love to. (laughs) Thank you for, for having me. It's been an absolute pleasure. Thanks again, Aaron. Fast Track was presented by me, Margie Hartley. Producer, Tina Matalov. Audio production by Nikki Sitch. Executive producer, Jennifer Goggin. Listener.